So far, uh, we have talked in, in our sermon series here, you know, Christ meeting us at the intersection of temptation. And last week we talked about Christ meeting us at the intersection of worry and anxiety, something that we all face. Today, we're going to talk about Christ meeting us at the intersection of shame. And I want to begin this morning by reading Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. It's the same verse that we've used um, for our, the last two sermons. It says this, it says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. And again, we shared about that. You know, it's not part of the day. Some of the day, it's all day long. Our hope is in him. And again, David, King David, he expresses his desire for guidance. And, and it's not just any guidance, folks. It's the guidance that God has for him. For it is at the intersection of life where we most need the guidance and the instruction that can only be found in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's how we have this theme this morning. So this morning, we are going to meet Christ. I'm going to put it up here. And if you remember last week, we talked about this. It's where everything converges. You know, I talked about um, taking that motorcycle class. And the one thing that my, my instructor said is that intersections are the most dangerous place to be on a motorcycle because everything converges right there on on that spot. And so you have to be prepared. You have to be alert. You have to be looking behind you, beside you, in front of you, everywhere around you because we know that intersections can be very, very dangerous, especially if you're coming up here and you're making a left-hand turn. You, you're very exposed there, and you got to be really be careful. That's why those signs are there, watch for motorcycles. <laughs> But here's where we meet Christ at the intersection of our life. And we want to talk about what he has to say to us about shame. I think it's a, it's a, it's a pretty good topic. How many of you have ever heard this? Shame on you. Shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. Anybody ever say that to you? You know, you, you should know better. What's wrong with you? So we've all probably heard that. Maybe some of us have had that said to us. You know, I don't know how many of you have had those words thrown your way. You know, they, they, these people might mean well, but what they're doing is they're raining down what it seems like is judgment on you. You know, many Christians find themselves defeated. I think they find themselves defeated by the most powerful psychological weapon that Satan can use against us. And I tell you what, it, he uses it against a lot of Christians, and it's really sad. This weapon has the effectiveness of a deadly missile. You know, I don't know how many of you have watched the war in the Ukraine. But let me tell you something. The United States gave the Ukraines, back when Trump was president, gave them so many missiles. And I watched as these helicopters come flying, and there was like six of them, and you could hear these ARAM missiles coming out and they were going up and they took out all six of those helicopters like that. And I think that that's the kind of weapon that Satan uses against us to take us out. 
the weapon is as effective as deadly missiles, you know, and it, its name comes in many forms. It comes in low self-esteem. It comes in worthlessness. But it also comes in shame. I think Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-leveling feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and, and low self-esteem. And when he can make us feel shameful, boy, I tell you what, he has us. You know, this feeling kind of shackles many Christians in spite. And, and what's funny about it is it's in spite of the wonderful spiritual experiences that we have been able to share with one another. Isn't he does that? Although they understand their position as sons and daughters of the king, and that's who we are. We are sons and daughters of the king. And regardless of that, you know, it's, it's, it's so frustrating because we get all tied up in knots. We get bound by this terrible feeling of inferiority and, and chained to this deep sense of worthlessness and this, this utter shame. And we don't need to feel that, folks. We don't need to bring that upon ourselves because Christ has already handled that for us. You know, it's a word that we don't often use in our daily conversation because I don't think many of you are being told by your mom or your dad, shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. We don't always use that. We don't use it in groups and we definitely don't use it from the pulpit very much. Uh, That's for sure. But it is something that every single one of us out here has experienced. And these topics that we're going to be talking about are topics that all of us have either experienced or we're going through it right now. And so we need to be careful. It's the feeling that that we have missed the mark according to our own standard or the perception of someone else's standard for us. And sometimes we get caught in that, don't we? We worry too much about what other people think of us. Shame keeps us from being honest with our struggles, sins, and less than perfect moments. And I think also fear of shame, what it does is it drives us to perfectionism in all areas of our life so that there would be no imperfection to be noticed or judged. And we need to be really careful of that because we know that none of us are ever going to be perfect on this side of heaven. And shame is what we heap on others when they fail us. Shame on you. We heap that on them. Shame keeps us from holding, it, 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 it keeps us from getting over this bitterness that we have, um, refusing to forgive people when they hurt us. You know, we are, we are impacted by shame, the shame of sin that, that, that people have committed against us. And a lot of times what it does is it totally destroys relationships that we have with one another. It drives a wedge. A, a huge spike between those relationships. And so we need to be really careful that we don't allow that to happen. And also, shame can be darker and deeper as well. You know how? Here's how. It's what a perpetrator gives to their victim when they violate them. You know what I'm talking about. They will carry that shame forever unless they can find a way to bring it to the light of day. They'll carry it forever. But what we need to do is we, we, we need to disown it. We need to name the shame as the perpetrator's shame. 
Shame on them, not you. Not you. I believe that shame can be the lack of parental affection and attention that leaves a child with this indelible mark that they're not worthy. That's why, parents, we need to be really careful. Not that we need to, you know, put bubble wrap around our kids and and worry about that, but that we need to understand that it's important that we share our love with them every single day. You need to let them know that you love them every day. Even if they don't deserve it. And sometimes they won't. (laughs) Shame arises from past sin that, that seems to forever haunt us. How many of you, don't raise your hands. How many of you have that shame in your heart that comes up every once in a while that just makes you feel like you're not worthy? I know I have that. And you know that sin that you feel like you can't share with anyone? So what happens is you stay in hiding. You you kind of hole up in your lonely little bunker of one. That's what you do. Never letting anyone get close enough to see you, to see that part of you, because if they were to see that part of you, you know they wouldn't like you. And that's what Satan wants you to constantly think. He wants to tell you that because he wants you to feel rotten all the time. He does. And I've said it before, he wants to steal our joy. And what better way to steal your joy than to make you feel bad about yourself all the time? Boy, is that true. And I believe that shame has two conflicting instincts. Number one, shame needs to isolate and hide. It wants to make us isolate and hide. Number two, it needs a community in which to be transparent. It needs a community in which to to not be judged. It needs a community that will uplift them and love them regardless of the shame. Guess what? It's always easier and more natural to hide than it is to come out. But you know what? I think we're smart enough to know that the easy way is rarely the most fruitful way, which leaves us the hard way, which means that's impossible. I can't do that. I can't share that. Guys, that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. That's what Jesus is all about. That's why we need to meet him at that intersection of shame. Jesus had no shame. Or did he? That is, most of us probably think that he never felt any shame. Why would the Son of God feel shame? Think about that. What would the Son of God ever have to be ashamed of? You know, what did he ever do to suffer shame's anguish and agony? What would Jesus have to be ashamed of? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. He hung on a cross, guys. Remember that? 
That's what we have behind us here. He hung on a cross. And, and I like what William Wilson says in his book called The Execution of Jesus. Here's what he writes in The Execution of Jesus. He says, not only was the cross the most painful of deaths, it was also considered the most degrading, the most humiliating, and the most shameful of all deaths. That's what he tells us. The condemned man was stripped naked and left exposed in his agony. And oftentimes the Romans, he would go on to say, even denied burial to the victim, allowing his body to hang on the cross until it rotted away. He wasn't even afforded a burial. That's how disgusting and humiliating and shameful death on the cross was. It is understandably that, according to Jewish law, this is what they said. Anyone who was crucified was considered cursed. You know, suffering before a mob who beat him and spat on him and made fun of him was humiliating enough But Jesus' shame went deeper and much deeper than that. And you know, as we get to Easter, we get to the resurrection. Before we can get to that, we have to go through that that whole trial. And we'll understand where, where we're coming from today. See, beneath his mangled face and bloody wounds, the sinless one actually became sin on your behalf. In my behalf. What does that look like? I, I, I can't even, I can't even hardly understand what that even looks like. But that's what he did. He became that, he became that for us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every shameful act committed, the darkest of human thoughts and actions were heaped upon Jesus on that cross. Osowitz was there. All of Stalin's things that he did were there. Cambodia's killing fields were there. Abortion and, and perversion and violence and, and greed and hate. Every disgusting and disobedient sin that we can think of was heaped upon Jesus. Jesus became this frightening horror of evil. Not, bef- not from anything that he had done, but from everything that we had done. You know, we struggle just to deal with the shame of our own sins, don't we? But he grappled with everyone's for all time, all at the same time. And the author of Hebrews reveals that he died loathing that unfathomable shame by himself. God could not look upon Jesus anymore because Jesus became sin for us God cannot look upon that sin. And so God had to turn his back. He could not look at Jesus. The writer says this in in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, talking about Jesus, he says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus did. And I believe that shame is worse than remorse, more painful than defeat, far deeper than disappointment, and more penetrating than even embarrassment. It is a, a naked guilt, devastating dishonor, raw disgrace is what it is. Perhaps the most intense form of self-hatred. And when we cannot escape it, when every thought is stained with self-reproach, we experience what I would call a living death, which explains why suicide frequently follows extreme shame. Do you remember what Judas did? Judas was so ashamed of himself. And this is what he, this is what it says in, in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 5. It says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him. They led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And you notice what they said? They said, what is that to us? We don't care. They replied, that's your responsibility. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went out and he hanged himself. He hanged himself. That's why a lot of times suicide follows extreme shame. The young man that that was so close to us, our friends Ben and Robin Barnhart, their son, that was mentioned that he just felt felt so so much shame. He didn't know where to turn. And let me tell you, folks, that's what Jesus died for. We can always turn to him, can't we? You know, there was another person in the scripture who experienced extreme shame. I just can't, I can't fathom this, but this woman who was caught in adultery, you know, she, she could not escape the literal nakedness of her guilt, dishonor, and disgrace. And, and she, she would have died that day. Don't get me wrong, she didn't die, but she would have died that day had it not been for her encounter with Jesus at the intersection of shame. She would have died. They would have stoned her to death. So I want to visit that. If you got your Bibles, and you can follow along here on the screen there, but if you got your Bibles, turn to John. We're going to look at John chapter 8. I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I want to visit this painful intersection. Notice what it says there in John chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It says this. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It says there, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, And he sat down to teach them. You know, 
the sun was probably just coming up. I'm only imagining this, you know, over the temple in Jerusalem, and and, and many people were had, had been gathering around Jesus. You know, it was like people were attracted to Jesus like bees are to honey. You know, they 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 just wanted to be where he was. You know, up streets, downstairs, around corners. You know, early risers would swarm through that brisk morning air to take in all that Jesus was going to teach them. I mean, you had the Son of God right there to be able to teach you. Who wouldn't want to do that? And as he begins to teach, the peaceful setting is completely shattered by a handful of men with their hearts just absolutely filled with hate. Notice what it says in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. Can you imagine that? They brought her in. I mean, and they probably just threw her right in front of Jesus. Christ's words suddenly dry up as these self-righteous intruders put shame on display. They are, they are throwing her right out there for the wolves. I mean, they're, they're, they're putting shame on display. <clears throat> and around the room, can you imagine the gasp? The, 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 the whole atmosphere changing from one of eager to learn to one of judgment. You know, these threatening leaders, you know, they throw this woman in front of the crowd in front of Jesus. You know, her appearance is probably pretty rough as she was probably, you know, struggling against these guys. You know, probably little or, or no clothes on in a, in a room full of people. I tell you what, <clears throat> when I'm in the bathroom by myself and I don't have clothes on, I walk in front of the mirror, I don't want to see myself. Can you imagine this woman? She's in a crowd of people. And she probably has hardly any clothes on because they have taken her right then and there and thrown her in front of this crowd. <clears throat> would you feel ashamed? I would feel ashamed. You know, you can probably hear the public um, just, you know, gasping, you know, in, in the panic of her breathing. And so she stands there pulling and clutching at her, her clothes, you know, what, whatever she has on, which probably is very little. But there isn't enough to protect her from the humiliating stares or to cover the shame of her face. And I believe a raised hand with a rock kind of silenced the crowd because these people were about ready to kill her with stones. These scribes, these, these Pharisees, you know, sanctimoniously they exposed this woman's sin. And I imagine what they probably did is they probably did it in intricate detail. They were probably telling the whole crowd what she had done. Notice what it says there in John chapter 8, verse 4. It says this. <clears throat> and it said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. You know, in the Greek, the word caught here, right there, means this. It means to seize or to overcome. That's what that word means. The word caught means to, to seize or to overcome. So what it suggests according to the, the, the tense that is being read here in the sentence is that the scribes and the Pharisees 
actually pulled the woman right off of her partner in the heat of the moment. That's what it means. You know, and my question is probably the same question that you're asking right now too, or thinking is, where in the heck is the man? Yeah, I knew that. I knew that. Where's this guy? Where's her lover? You know, his absence is just as conspicuous as her presence. Well, had he escaped? <clears throat> I don't think so. I don't think that's likely what happened. Since there were a lot of scribes and Pharisees, they outnumbered him. So there's no way in the world he could have escaped. I would think it's more likely that he was deliberately allowed to go free. That's what I think. In fact, as you read the account and, and scrutinize the implications here, I think it, it, it more likely is that the male partner is one of the accusers that's right there accusing her. I would not, it would not surprise me at all. And I believe that he was put up to the immoral act beforehand. And you know why? Do you know why he was put up to that act? I think it was because they just needed the woman as bait for bigger game. Who was the bigger game there? Jesus, that's right. It was Jesus. Whom the scribes and the Pharisees believed that they could trap with this loaded question. You know, they just didn't learn their lesson, did they? And they just don't learn their lessons. Notice what it says in verses 5 and 6a there. <clears throat> the, the, they're, they're saying this in, in the law of Moses the, or in, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women now what do you say now what do you say he's, they're saying you know and so it says here it says they were using this question as a trap in order to, to have a basis for accusing him accusing Jesus that's what they were doing they, the, this whole scene here is all about trying to trap Jesus. What grounds? You know, the commentator William Barclay, I think he reveals a very lethal dilemma here on which the scribes and the Pharisees sought to nail Jesus to the... I mean, they, they wanted to nail him. They wanted to kill him. That's what they wanted to do. But Barclay says this. He says, if he had said that the woman ought to be stoned to death, two things would follow. First, Jesus would lose the name he had gained for love and for mercy and would never regain that again or be able to be called the friend of sinners. Second, William Barclay goes on to say this. He says, <clears throat> he, he would come into collision with the Roman law for the Jews had no power to carry or to pass or to carry out the sentence of death on anyone. So if he said that the woman should be pardoned, it could immediately be said that he was teaching men to break the law of Moses and that, that condoning it, he was encouraging people to commit adultery. That's what he was doing. And that was the trap in which they sought to entrap Jesus. Justice and mercy... Either way, it was a snare. The Pharisees have cornered Jesus, or so they think, or so they think. Instead of answering, however, what does Jesus do? He, 
what he does, and this it's only recorded here, nowhere else in Scripture. Notice what it says there in, in, in John chapter 8, verse the last part of 6. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's what it says. He bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. What do you think Jesus wrote there? You know, some say Jesus simply was doodling in the dust until he collected his his thoughts. I don't believe that at all. But the Greek term for the word wrote or the word write suggests something more. You know, the Armenian translation of the New Testament translate the passage this way. And I want you to hear this. It says, He himself, bowing his head, was writing with his finger on the earth to declare their sins. And they were seeing their sins written in the dirt or on the stone. And so as as they're standing there accusing this woman of adultery, Jesus has bent down and he's writing their sins in the dirt there. And I believe that's probably more of what, what, what it would have been like. The suggestion is that Jesus was writing in the dust the sins of the very men who were accusing the woman. You know, and I think there's something to that. You know, the normal Greek word for the, the, the whole phrase there, to write, is graphene. But the word used here in this passage is, is kata graphene. Kata. Which can mean to write down a record against someone. To write down a record against someone. It, it may be that Jesus was confronting those self-confident, self-righteous hypocrites with the record of their own sins. And I believe that's what he was doing. We don't know for sure what he was doodling in there. I mean, he could have been, like I do, he, might, he could have been doing that little elephant thing, you know, drawing, I don't know what he was. But that's what I believe. Just because of the Greek words there, I think, kind of lend themselves to that. The graphing and the cartographing. Jesus' writing drives these religious wolves into a greater frenzy, you know. Notice what it says. They, they, they persisted in asking him again. Look at verse 7 there. It says, when they kept on questioning him, they kept on questioning him. He, he straightened up and said to them, you know, they, they kept on asking him. They were persistent. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they could smell blood. And, and, and they were, they were determined to hound their prey into this indefensible position. They were, they were trying to corner Jesus. In other words, that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to corner Jesus, but little did these hypocrites realize that they weren't messing with some weak prey. They were messing with the line of Judah. I mean, who could have spoken the word and they would have been gone. They were messing with the line of Judah. Wow. <clears throat> one reply, one reply, and he scatters the whole wolf pack. <laughs> Notice what it says there in the last part of verse 7. It says, he, he says to them, he says, if any one of you is without sin, hmm, maybe they didn't think this through all the way. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first one to cast the stone at her or throw the stone at her. Then again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground again. Literally, Jesus said, the sinless 
one of you first on her, let him cast a stone. And you know, though it may sound awkward in the English, I think it carried a tremendous impact in the Greek. Enough so that it stunned these religious leaders into silence. For the first time in the whole scene, they finally shut their mouths. The sinless one of you first. The sinless one of you first. Who will throw the first rock? Step one up. But before you do, be sure that your own heart is pure. Tell everyone in this room how it is that you've never committed adultery in your heart or something else that I've written down in the, in the dirt there. But no one even dared. No one even dared. Notice what it says there in verse 9. It says, it says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You know, I think Peter Marshall saw the scene this way, and I think he's right on. He says, looking into their faces, Christ sees into the yesterdays that lie deep in the pools of memory and conscience. He says, he sees into their very hearts. Jesus sees into our very hearts, guys. And after moving the finger, he writes idolater, liar, drunken, murderer, adulterer. You know, there, there are thuds of stones as they hit the ground and not many of the Pharisees are left. And one by one, they, they kind of creep away like animals slinking back into the shadows, you know, shuffling off into the crowded streets to lose themselves in the multitudes. And I think Peter Marshall's picture here is right on because they couldn't condemn her at that point because they were just as guilty as her. And Jesus pointed that out. And though her accusers leave, the guilt of this woman's sin still remains. Shame still burns inside of her like this, this smoldering self-hate. So, so what if no one condemned her? Well, she's like us, guys. We condemn ourselves. And that's what she was doing. She condemned herself. But you know what the greatest thing about this story is? Is that Jesus didn't. Notice what it says there in verses 10 and 11. It says, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Wow. The only one qualified to condemn this woman didn't. The only one powerful enough to set her free from her shame did. And with honesty, he says, go and, and, and leave your life of sin. And he and he had compassion on her. He said, neither do I condemn you. You know, Jesus gently removes her guilt and shame and he clothes her with righteousness and love. In other words, what he does for her is he sets her free. And he can do the same for us. 
I want to make a quick note here about this. Remember Romans 3.23. It says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And also in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, it affirms this. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I, I want to throw that in there for you, folks. So, so, so what is Jesus saying to the woman when he says, Go and sin no more? Go and leave your life of sin. You know, I, I think what he's doing, I think he is pointing out to her that these dangerous men were trying to kill her. Consider leaving your ways that you don't end back up here again. He doesn't want to see her end up here. You know, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't get out of this life that you're leading, someday you could end up here again and this time or the next time, it might not be so good for you. But what I want to do for you is I want to give you life. I want to give you abundant life. And what I think he was doing is I think he was lovingly warning her about the dangers of her lifestyle. He knows that she, like all of us, will sin again. But his words here say, you know, I don't condemn you. Instead, I want to redirect you, you know, you know to, to come into a new life with me. You know, that, that same new life that, that we get to be a part of. And he was offering that new life to her, just like he's offered it to us. Jesus sets her free, just like he sets you and me free. Go and leave your life of sin, because there's more out there for you than this. There's more than this for you. You know, and there are moments in our lives, folks, when we get caught in the very act, you know, and it might not be adultery, but, but it, it's sin just the same. It doesn't matter what it is. And like the woman, we too, we're going to be accosted by rock throwers who are not qualified to condemn us, but they do. People who will take special delight in publicizing your shame. For your own sake, stay away from those Pharisees. Stay away from them. Don't allow them to use you as target practice. You don't need that in your life. Instead, draw near and confess your sin to the one who is qualified to condemn you, but doesn't. And his name is Jesus. And in Romans 8, 1, Paul declares this. I love this passage of scripture. Paul declares this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. You should be excited about that. Even if it had been you instead of the woman who was dragged before Christ that morning, his words would have been the same and are still the same today. Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, leave your life of sin because you are now free in me. You're free. You know, oftentimes, not even our intimate friends know about our deepest feelings of shame. Maybe even our husbands or our wives don't know. You know, the, the shameful thing we did or, or that was done to us seems so horrible, so grotesque, it may make us feel worthless and ugly just just about just if we even think about it 
And so we push our way you know, through these painful memories that, that awaken our shame. And, and, we, and we try to deny them. We try to lock them in the closet and doing everything that we can to keep from hearing those accusers' voices inside of us saying, you're no good. You're worthless. You're stupid. You don't deserve this. Shame is a powerful emotion. Powerful enough to twist our lives into a living hell. Powerful enough to even drive some to suicide. But I'm going to tell you right now, suicide is not the way to silence our shame. And neither is denial. What will... What do you think will silence it then? My question is, what will silence our shame? You know, we could do the one thing that that we always absolutely feel would be the worst thing to do, and that is we could expose the raw disgrace of our shameful, you know, and do it voluntarily. Instead of being dragged into the temple, we could just walk into the temple and ask Jesus to free us as he did the woman caught in adultery. You know, would you be willing to confide your shame in Jesus? You know, you've you've seen how he dealt with the adulteress, this this adulterer woman. You know, he's already paid the penalty for your sin. He's already experienced your shame on the cross. That's what he has done for us. Nothing you have done or said or even thought is going to surprise him. And what he does is he promises us that he will not reject us. If you look back over in this passage in John, you look back over to John chapter 6, here's what he says in John chapter 6, verse 37. If I can find it here, I'll read it to you. He says this. He says, okay, he says, all that the fathers, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He says, I will never drive away. I will never not accept you. I will be there for you. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So I think what we need to do is we need to allow him to speak to you, to speak to us through prayer and through his word and release from us the guilt and the shame that we oftentimes carry around you know, it's that, it's that what Max Lucado calls that sack of stones that you have on your back that make you feel like you're so weary from it. You know, I told Jerry this morning that I, when I got up and got out of bed, you know, I, I was so sore I didn't know if I could even come here. And he, you know what he said to me? He said, you wimp. <laughs> it's that sack of stones. I got that stone in the back of my backpack there, Jerry. <laughs> it's that sack of stones. And I like what Matthew tells us. Jesus says this. He says in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, this is what he says. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's in Jesus, guys. There's no condemnation So you mean I don't have to beat myself up anymore over the past? No. Jesus doesn't. It's over. Cling to your forgiveness in him, not your shame. You're free to stop it. You're free to stop it. 
I want you to see this video. This is one of my favorite Bob Newhart. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> That's okay. You don't need to finish. <laughs> that, that to me is one of my favorite um, Bob Newhart um, scenes. But I think the point there is, you know, what I want to say to you is this. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. You know, you're forgiven. You have, you, you, you have to understand that, that the biblical truth is not this magic wand. You know, we can't wave a few promises over our heads and expect all the feelings of shame in our heart to suddenly disappear. You know, they're, they're still there. They're going to be there. And the only way to get rid of them is to consciously and diligently weed them out through the truth. And Paul tells us how we can do that. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says this. He says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, you know, he, and he goes on to say, by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's this concept of renewing your mind to the liberating truth that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to hold on to that truth. I want you to plant it. I want you to water it. I want you to sink it into your, to your mind there. You know, make its roots go deep into your thinking. You know, when you catch yourself starting to feel shame over something that you've already confessed in Jesus Christ, then stop it. Don't do it. Just stop it. Focus instead on Christ's compassion and his forgiveness. Renew your thinking right then and there based upon God's word. You know, shame isn't based upon God's word. Shame isn't easy to weed out, especially when it has already spread its roots deep into our heart for years. But I want you to not get discouraged about that. Just, just keep cultivating the truth and remember what Jesus promised. In the very few verses there, if you go back to John chapter 8, right there at the end, this is what he promises us in verse 31 and 32. He says this, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Meet Jesus at the intersection of shame and allow him to set you free from all the shame that you're experiencing, from all the temptations that you're experiencing, from all the anxiety and worry that you experience, allow him to set you free. And remember this, stop it. Just stop it. You don't need to anymore. Amen? So now just do it. I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. And this morning... If you need to come and you need to give your life over to the Lord,